0: I have to utilize a skill of holding a microphone, talking, and I, today, of all days, I have, I have pointer operations, so I could use about one more hand for all of this stuff, so, so bear with me. Happy New Year's. Um, you know, this is one of those, we call it uh, cordless microphone appreciation day. I, I now appreciate what I have, and so hopefully by next week we will be back in business, um, but today. As we start out the new year, we're starting a new book of the Bible, and we are going to be in the Gospel of Luke. And so if you'd like to open your Bible to the Gospel of Luke, it goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We are working kind of in backwards order. Last year, we went through Acts. Acts is part two of Luke. And so we we did part two. Now we're going to start part one. Um, with this book i today's message is going to be a little bit different Um, you know every week when you work your way through a book of the bible there's you know how much do we cover do we do we fly over a huge section do we cover a little bit Um, today what i decided to do is the first four verses of luke are an orientation an introduction to the writing and so I've been skimming or reading and studying all different commentators this week for the purpose of trying to glean as much information on the book, background information, so that we can kind of orientate ourselves to what's different about this gospel. Of the four gospels, there are, they're written by different people. And they go to different people. And each one kind of emphasizes something different. And all of them together gives, give us a very full picture of who Jesus was. For example, Matthew, the first gospel, is very Jewish in its nature. It's, it's written by a Jewish man, as all of the gospels are except for Luke. But it's showing to the Jewish people the prophecy that was fulfilled in Christ's coming to really show to them that Jesus is the Messiah, Mark was written to the context of, of going to the Romans, and Mark is short, it's fast, it's to the point, it's filled with action, and it's written to a Roman background. Now, Luke is written by a Gentile, and it's written to a Gentile, to Gentiles, and, and so uh, there's a lot of differences that we'll look at. Now, on Luke... The Gospel of Luke is the longest of all of the Gospels. It was Larry tried to start reading it last night, and he said, man, it's long. And it really is. It really blows away a lot of the other Gospels as far as length. In fact, if you take Luke and Acts together, which are truly one book kind of cut in half, it takes up a quarter of the New Testament. So Luke was very wordy in what he had to say. And finally, the Gospel of John is written to, with a, a Greek background, um, kind of dealing with philosophy. That's, um, there's a lot of play on John chapter 1, and the beginning was, was the Word, and the Word was with God. That, if you were a Greek mind, that would make perfect sense to you. And so when we study that, we have to kind of go into the background to explain it. And so we're going to... Today's kind of different. I'm, if you have a question that comes up during this, I'd just raise your hand last service, there actually was a question. I didn't know the answer. I, so you guys will get the answer to the question when it comes up. Um, but really, this is a lot of this is just going to be me. Uh, as I've done all of this background information, I'm trying to skim it to give you guys the best information so that we kind of understand Luke, so that as we get into it, we have this framework of understanding it. Uh, so let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for this day. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we pray that as we begin this study of Luke, Father, we ask that you would um, illuminate its meaning, Father, that you would help us to understand uh, the correct interpretation, what you intended as you sent this, this book out. Father, we pray that your spirit would soften our hearts, Lord that, we would, um, Lord, that we would just draw closer to you, that we would fall more in love with you, that we would give you more of our lives. And, Father, we just are so thankful for the work that Jesus did and for um, that what he did was so public and so acknowledged and that there's so much data that we can place our faith on. And so, Father, we ask that through this study that you would uh, guide us and direct us, Lord, that you would strengthen our walk with you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to start with reading the first four verses, if you'd like to read with me. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth, About the things that you've been taught. So, in most of the the Bible, a lot of the Bible, the introduction, not every book, but a lot of the books will actually tell you who wrote the book. And in this, we know who it's to, to Theophilus. The closest thing that we get out of Luke to understanding who the author is, is me. That's the only word. In verse 3, it says, It seemed fitting for me. Now you say, and it was asked to me, but Gunnar, the name of the book is Luke. It's like, well, yeah, but we named the book Luke. We, it doesn't say that it was from Luke. So how do we come to the place where we understand that Luke wrote Luke? I'm glad you asked. Because <laughs> I did a little bit of homework on this this week. So what I want you to do is, since we know Acts, we do know that the same author, the author who wrote Luke and the author who wrote Acts, are the same person. So if you'll turn with me over to Acts chapter 1. This is kind of like inductive Bible study 101. This this helps us to know how to handle the scriptures. So in Acts chapter 1, we read, the first account I composed. Ah, we're getting, he changed it. He didn't say me, he said I. So same guy, the first account is the gospel of Luke. So he's referring back to the Gospel of Luke, and he says, Theophilus, the person he's writing to, it's the same person that he wrote to the Gospel of Luke about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day that he was taken up to heaven. So in this, we learn, okay, in the first book that this author wrote, Luke, that he began to write all of the things that happened from the birth of Christ until he was taken up to heaven. And then he says, now in this second account, we're going to continue the story at the middle of verse 2. It says, after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen, to these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. And so he basically says, now in this account, After he ascended into heaven, he continued working amongst the people of earth through the church, through his spirit. And this is the story of the early church, which we all covered. So you can go back to Luke. And then I'm going to go back to Luke so I can remember what I'm talking about. So now Acts doesn't say, well, this is Luke writing you the letter. So what we do to determine that it was Luke, as you go through Acts, you get to the we section of Acts in chapters I wrote it down here, chapter 16, chapter 20, 21, 27, and 28. Towards the end of Acts, the author stops writing from they did this, they did this, they did this, to we did this. Suddenly the author is now present in the story. And so that means that whoever wrote Luke and Acts was a traveling companion of Paul. And so as... You look at the possibilities of who this author could be from the scholarship of the work here. You can, by process of elimination, whittle it down to two guys, Luke, and the other person is Titus. But nobody in church history ever has thought that Titus was capable of this work, of writing this work. And so then we go to the early church fathers. Did I lose anybody? This is, we, we just doesn't really say. But then we get to 100 A.D., and all of the early church fathers, everybody throughout history, says Luke wrote it. And so there was the oral tradition that they said, you know what, Luke got the credit. Nobody challenged it early on in the church. It was understood. And that's how we got the name Luke, is that Luke wrote it. Question? Huh? Yeah. We're going to get there. That's a great question. We're going to look at who. That's the, now, that's the second question. That, that, that's, that question has been asked, who is the recipient? But before we get to the who is it, what do we know about Luke? The Bible only mentions his name three times. You'll see that long list there, Colossians 4.14, 2 Timothy 4.11, and Philemon 24. So the first thing we learned about him in Colossians 4.14, Paul refers to him as a beloved physician. So we know that he was a medical doctor. Now, a medical doctor during this era didn't have the same sort of prestige as a as, uh, as a, as a medical doctor today, today we see medical doctor, there's much respect. There's a lot of school. There's a lot of education. They're valued in society. Uh, during that day, it wasn't necessarily as prestigious, but we know that he was, we know that Luke was a physician. As we went through the gospel of, or through Acts, we see that Luke would... He would come on seeing Paul. There was that one time where they're traveling across Asia to the west. And Paul kept saying, ah, the spirit prevented me from going where I wanted to go. He gets all the way to the far eastern western edge of modern-day Turkey. And then suddenly there, he gets the Macedonian vision. He's okay. The text shifts to we. And it's thought that, hey, Luke was able to treat Paul, take care of his ailment so that he can continue. And from 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11... This, is, this letter Paul wrote at the very end of his life. He was, he was now in prison, but this was different than his other imprisonments. Uh, early imprisonments, he was under house arrest, so it was, it was nice living. He could pay, he'd pay rent. He would have Roman guards there. And he basically had a, a pretty good life, except um, he was under arrest. He couldn't leave. In 2 Timothy, the situation had changed. He was now facing his execution. He, he tells us in, in Timothy that I'm being poured out as a drink offering. My life is over. He, we know that he was probably in a 20 or 30 foot deep pit, just, just dirt, cold. And he says in uh, 2 Timothy 4.11, he says, people have deserted me. I've sent these guys here. Only Luke is with me. And then in the very next verse or second verse following that, he says, Timothy, when you come, can you bring me my jacket? But he says, cloak. But he's like, I'm cold. I'm freezing. Can you, I left it there. Can you bring it to me? I'm in need. And so we learn about Luke. He's a physician that he traveled with Paul. He was loyal to Paul's very end, his death. We know that Luke was Greek. He was, or he was a Gentile. He was not a Jewish person, which we're going to learn more about the character of the book. Other than this, we don't know much about Luke. In all of Luke's, he wrote a quarter of the of the New Testament. He wrote nothing about himself other than in the, the introduction that me and we. He doesn't care about his own fame or glory. He cares about telling the story of who Jesus was and what Jesus did through the early, early church. And I think that there's much that we can learn from him in that. Now, what, where did he write it from? Now, there's a, there's a little bit. Of, nobody really knows, and it doesn't really matter. But the theories of where he wrote this from affect the dating of the book. So so he wrote this. I kind of think it's conceivable that he wrote Luke from Caesarea when Paul was under arrest. Remember, Paul had appealed to Caesar, and they took him down to the Caesarea. And the week after I preached on that, I found myself on – I was able to go to Israel, and it was such a blessing. And I stood in this beautiful place on the Med where he was under arrest for two years waiting to see Caesar. Some think that Luke was written during this time, that Luke was sitting around with Paul. He's under arrest. He's able to pick his brain. He's able to ask him all these questions and write all of this stuff. And then he traveled with Paul to Rome. And while Paul was under arrest in Rome, it's thought that he wrote Acts. Now, Acts ends very abruptly. It just kind of all the loose ends aren't dealt with. And it's thought that Paul was about to be executed And Luke just finished the letter, got it sent over to Theophilus. The dating of the book of Luke is about A.D. 60 60 to 62. And the reason that this is thought is because there are some historical events that would have been included in the caliber of Luke's writing that aren't included. Uh, The two things are the destruction of Rome and Jerusalem, which happened in A.D. 70, are not mentioned in this Letter, And so this is a very early writing of Luke. Over the course of his writing, he spans about six and a half decades. He begins next week. We're going to see with the when the angel comes to Zacharias of the he tells the prophecy that that John the Baptist is going to be born. So that happens probably in B.C. three, four. You know, we don't really know that it gets, you know, muscle is what we're dealing with. And he goes all the way up to Acts 28, which is where Paul's life was taken, most likely in the mid-65, AD 65. So he covers a lot of of time. Now, being that he was a Gentile, writing to Gentiles, or a Gentile and, and probably more than just Theophilus, there are certain things that you could notice about the Gospel of Luke that are different than the other Gospels. The first is is that he's not writing to Jewish people. And we think this because when he deals with locations in Israel, he, where, where a Jewish person would understand the various spots at the Sea of Galilee, Luke gets there and he says, oh, we're at Capernaum, and this is right across the way from Bethsaida. And he kind of explain, like, kind of talks them into the location, which he wouldn't have done to a Jewish person. So for those of us that aren't Jewish and don't have a lot of Jewish background, he's going to help us. He's going to walk us through um, concerning the genealogy, which I know you guys are all waiting for, the cover. You know, we love genealogies in the Bible. So, like three, four weeks, I won't tell you when it is because then everybody will not show up. But we're gonna kind of fly over it. But see, the genealogy in Matthew, Matthew's talking to Jewish people. He's showing all of the the, the messianic prophecies given towards Jesus. So he starts with Abraham, but. Luke, on the other hand, starts with Adam, the first man that was ever created, to show that, listen, this this event that happened through Jesus on earth, it applies to all of us, to all human beings, to all people are created from the Lord. The next thing is, as we go through Luke and Acts, well, we already did Acts, but as we go through Luke, as he dates events in Luke, he uses who the roman emperors were so he'll say that so and so was the emperor at this time so that was a very gentile way of of dating events the next thing is is when talking of jewish terminology he wouldn't use the jewish terms he would use a gentile understanding of the word. So, for example, uh, the Jewish in Matthew, you see the terms rabbi and scribes talked about over and over again. In Luke, he will not use the term rabbi or scribe. What he'll say is lawyer and teacher are the two terms he'll use in place. It would make more sense to a Gentile. There are very few Bible quotations and very few references to prof- prophetic events. And when he does quote the scriptures... The very few times he quotes from the Septuagint, the Greek understanding, the the Greek version of the Old Testament. Remember when we did the Psalms and we went over to Acts 2 and we say, hey, it's a little bit different than the Hebrew text. And that's because he's quoting from the Septuagint for the Greek, for the Gentile reader. Okay, that's a little background on that. Hopefully I didn't lose you. You guys probably feel like you're in seminary. Some of you like it. Some of you are like, oh, is he done yet? Now, the next thing, if we could go to the next slide. I want to give you a little um, geographical flow of Luke. I was planning on reading this really good thing I have, but my I'm kind of my hands are ocupado, so I'm going to kind of do it out of memory. So to orientate us, you know, first I want to say that is, if this year I had the opportunity to go to Israel, it, it, it opened up the text in a way that I can't begin to explain. But at the same time, I understand that if you haven't been there, it does, it, it, there was no major life-changing impact for you. So I would encourage you, if you do have the opportunity to go to Israel, go. If we as a church haven't, I'm praying that we could, that I could lead a, a group of us to Israel to have, like, Bible lecture time in Israel. I think that would be great. Um, but hopefully in the spring, what we're going to do is on Wednesday nights, I'm going to try to bring Israel to us through Ray Vanderland um, Family, Focus on the Family did a great series of Bible teaching in Israel. And I realized when I went to Israel how beneficial that these DVDs were in my own experience. And so hopefully we can do these. But as a little orientation to the land of Israel, we have the Sea of Galilee up in the north here. There's a river that flows south into the Dead Sea, which is at the very bottom here. This coastline, is this is the, the Mediterranean Sea line. We have – this is like where uh, modern-day Gaza Strip is down here, um, Mount Carmel, which was under fire, and they, they, have, they had a huge event up there recently. So our story next week, the story of Luke begins in Jerusalem. So a little circle here, and this is – there's so much humor in Luke. Luke begins with this angel coming into the temple where Zachariah, he's a priest, and he's, he's there doing his – he got called in to go into the temple – He's supposed to be making his sacrifices. While he's in there, this angel appears to him. And the angel says, Listen, your wife is about to get pregnant. And the forerunner of Christ is going to come through him. And he's going to prepare the way for the people. And the thing that I find funny is, Zach, Zach, Zachariah was a wise man. Because he looks at the angel and he says, I'm a very old man. And then concerning his wife, he doesn't say she's a very old woman. He says, she's very advanced in years. And she's barren. How in the world is this going to happen? And he says, because of your lack of faith, you're silenced. You're not going to be able to speak until your son is born. So he comes out of the temple. The people are like, what happened? What took you so long? And he can't talk. So I wish I could have seen this game of charades. It goes all the way up to the birth of the son when they're, the son's about to be born, or he is born. They say, what are we going to name him? And Elizabeth, his mom, says, we're going to name him John. And all the people say, there are no Johns in your family. Are you not telling us something? Looks over at John, or to the dad, Zachary, and he's like, what do you want to name the kid? He's like, somebody give me a piece of paper. And he gets a paper, and it says, John is his name. And at that moment, then he can start speaking again. And it's just a, a great story. So from from there in Jerusalem... We're going to next place we're going to appear is up in Nazareth, which is about the question from the last service is how far is it from the Dead Sea to the Sea of Galilee? And it's about as the way the crow flies about 80 miles. But the problem is today and then is this middle section is Samaria. Today, it's controlled by the Palestinians. It's called the West Bank. If you're talking to a Palestinian, it's called East Jerusalem. If you're talking to an Israeli. But even today, this middle section of Samaria, if you want to go from the the Sea of Galilee down to Jerusalem, you have to go about 30 miles to the coast, about 80 miles down, and then you cut in because you don't want to cut through that area. And so we're going to show up at Nazareth, and the angel's going to appear to Mary, and Mary's going to be told that she's going to conceive miraculously a son. She sings this great song. The son is about to be born, and and the, the the emperor says, we need a census of all of the land. And so they have to travel from Nazareth down to Bethlehem to fulfill prophecy. And so then Jesus is born in Bethlehem. There's no room because of all of what's happening. He's born there in Bethlehem. From Bethlehem, Luke is not going to talk about the escape that they make to Egypt. He doesn't mention it. The other gospels do, that they were going to kill all these boys that were born that were under two years old because of the prophecy so they escape down to Egypt, but we're not going to see that in Luke. And then from there, they end up back in Nazareth, Jesus' hometown. This whole northern region is referred to as the Galilee. This is where Jesus spent most of his life. He eventually would, would set his home up in Capernaum, is the Hebrew way to say it. And now I say it that way. It, it looks like Capernaum. So Capernaum, if you guys, that's what I'm talking about. This little place right on the shoreline, that became Jesus' sort of his home spot that he would live. Um, Peter was from there. Um, and then they would do all kind of ministry in this area. Three times a year for all of the festivals, Jesus would traverse down to Jerusalem and go to Jerusalem for the festivals. A uh, part of Luke we'll see in between Samaria and Galilee. There, there's like a line of demarcation. He did some ministry there. And towards the end, he eventually works his way all the way down to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, he often, while he was there, he would do ministry. He would talk and teach in Jerusalem and he would escape over to Bethany or the Mount of Olives right here. We'll see some stuff in Jericho. And so he operates down there until he's until he's executed on the cross. Then three days and three nights later, he he rises from the grave and The next scene that we see in Luke chapter 24, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, Jesus appears to them. They don't know that he's them. So from Jerusalem, you can see that little dotted line. That's Emmaus right there. So on that road, Jesus appears. So this is kind of, you know, hopefully somebody enjoyed the geographical overview of where we're going in Luke. So next week, we're going to pick up the story in Jerusalem. So we can go back to this previous slide. And we 're going to get into our text, the first four verses here, okay, so Luke chapter one verse one. now we have that was there any questions there was we're going to get to Theophilus he's still coming any anything else come up okay because guys, I read so much stuff that's floating around in here and I've had to go what's important or oh, there's a question larry I'm, I'm nervous with Larry anybody else anybody, are there any other hands out there that last last question okay no. Okay, Larry, what's the question? You said that he picked false brain, but it looks like he's talking here beginning with eyewitnesses and he picked the brains of some of the others. We're going to get there. That's okay. This is what we're going to get. Good question. Great question. Okay. So verse one, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us. So he starts out this first verse. He begins his writing. He says, listen, all kind of people have documented the life of Jesus. What, and I, for me, I, from a biblical pastor, Christian, uh, Jesus is God, you know, all the orthodox stuff about Jesus, I'm going to, let's just pretend that I don't believe any of that stuff. Let's say that I'm an atheist and I'm just a, a regular guy. I don't believe in God. I don't believe in this stuff. There is nobody that can deny the impact that Jesus of Nazareth, the impact that he had on the world, the, the historical importance that this guy did is overwhelming. We're 2,000 years later. There are people still bickering over whether he's God or not God and what he did and did he really exist? Did he say the things he said? This just doesn't happen to anybody. He turned the world upside down, and they knew it then. And Luke says, listen. Our generation, I believe that's the us. Anybody who is living during his time, he says, there are all kind of people that have tried to document and write down and record the history that happened so that future generations have done this. He says that. Then in verse 2, he says, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. So people are writing it down, people who saw it, were telling stories to their friends, to their neighbors, to their kids. And we learn from this that Luke was not an eyewitness. He did not witness the life of Jesus. So we know that Luke is a physician by trade. History will show that he also became a historian. As he wrote Luke in Acts, the quality of history that he writes down, he then gets lumped to becoming a historian. And I don't think he was trying to be a historian. He just was. And as I was thinking about this, he says, okay, so there's written documents. And then as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses. So these eyewitnesses made accounts. These eyewitnesses passed down orally. And I started thinking, what would this look like in today, like in our world? And the closest thing I could think of, if I take the the timeline of everything, would be the Vietnam War. See, today, I I was born right at the end of the Vietnam War. And... I never was there. I've never been to Vietnam. But if I want to study on what happened during the Vietnam War, I can read all kind of history. I can read history books of guys that were there firsthand. I still today can talk to people firsthand that served on both sides from the Vietnamese side and the American side. they probably – is there anybody here that actually served in Vietnam? So we have one guy back here. Bob Towsley served back there. So we could go to Bob and say, Bob, tell us about your experiences firsthand when you were in Vietnam. And we could go to Vietnam, find guys who served on the Vietnam side. Hey, tell us firsthand. And if I had any sort of clout or leverage about who I was as a person, as Luke did, I would be able to talk to, if the president was still alive from that time, but Nixon's dead and and, uh, the other, who was the actual, Johnson, they've all passed away but you could still find leading commanders on both sides that you could go interview and communicate with, get firsthand information. I mean, thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people today concerning the Vietnam War, that we can get firsthand information about what happened. And see, Luke, we know that he became a Christian, most likely on Paul's second missionary journey, to refresh, to take you back to Acts. It's one of my favorite stories. It's the big fight, you know, the Paul and Barnabas over John Mark, everybody thinks something different about who is right and wrong. My wife and I land on different sides of the page on this one, and we love arguing about it. It's so much fun. I'll, I'll win her over eventually. <laughs> I totally think it's about your personality type, who you think is right. But so they're about to set off on their second missionary journey. Paul and Barnabas get in this argument because Barnabas wants to take his cousin, Mark, with them. Paul says, no, he flaked on us the first time, so we're not going to take him. They go their separate ways. On that journey, it's thought that Paul met Luke. And we know this because in the text when Luke is writing Acts, this is where the we section picks up. That suddenly he was there firsthand. So Paul is traveling with Paul, the apostle, who wrote most of the New Testament. He has access to Peter, to James, the brother of Jesus, all of the people who saw these. And as he's traveling, as Paul's arrested and people are coming to visit, he's interviewing them. What did you learn? What happened? Give me your information. Okay, you said this. No, he said this. I'm going to put the story together. So he's doing just a massive amount of studying. And this is where we get to verse 3. Verse 3 kind of transitions. He's talking distantly. Okay, there's a lot of people who try to compile it. There are many who passed it down over the generations. And now he's going to get to, now this is me, Luke. He says, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning to write it out for you in consecutive order. He says, you know what? I did more research than anybody out here. I taught firsthand knowledge of eyewitnesses. I was a skeptic. This is all the stuff I learned. And I know there's other resources out there, but I believe that it was fitting. It was reasonable for me since I did all this. I had all of this access to this information to write it down in consecutive order. And for the most part, Luke and Acts flow consecutively. We're going to start with the announcement of John the Baptist's birth. All the way to Paul's arrest. That doesn't mean that every little event happened in chronological order, because he's going to follow themes where he can group together a subject so that we can understand it. But he says, "Listen, I I investigated everything carefully. I studied. I have all the facts, and I want to present this to you." So Luke is a physician. He's a historian. We're going to see that he's a theologian and just the theology that he writes is rich and thick. The things that he's saying about the quotes of Jesus, he's a theologian. And then the final thing is he's a pastor. He wrote a quarter of the New Testament and he's driven by helping this guy, Theophilus, in his work. This is a great, he says, I'm going to write this all out to help you. That's a very pastorally thing sort of to do. Now, this most excellent Theophilus. Okay, the question of the day, who is this guy? (laughs) I don't know. I'm just joking. So Theophilus. The word Theophilus, this was a very common name during that time. Very common. It means lover of God. Now, because it means lover of God, there are some who have said Luke didn't write this to a person, but it was code. And we say that it's code because his name means lover of God. So, therefore, this letter or these books are read to all lovers of God. Makes kind of sense. And I would, to a certain extent, I would agree with it. But but the problem that we have is this, this title, Most Excellent Theophilus. And this is a term of a person of respect, somebody who's in, an authority. We don't know much. We don't know really anything about this guy, Theophilus. And I think that the Lord did that intentionally. I think He he hides stuff so that we don't start worshiping names or people or... The guy, Theophilus, this most excellent, means that he was an official at some higher capacity, like a Roman authority of some level. And he's writing this letter to this person. That's all we know. I hope that was acceptable. But that's all we know is that he, he was a, a, somewhere higher up in the Roman authority. We believe that he was a Christian already. Um, we see from the end of it, um, we're going to see that the purpose statement that Luke writes that he's not trying to win Theophilus. He's not trying to, to evangelize him to, to get him to believe in Jesus. Now, when we look at the gospel of John in chapter 20, I think it's verses 20 and 21, we know that, that John wrote his gospel to win people to Christ. He says, I wrote all of this stuff. All the books in the world contain everything about Jesus. But the reason that I wrote this to you is that you might believe that Jesus is Christ and believing in him, there's life. That's Gunner's version. But he t- Now, here, verse 4, this is going to be, this is my controlling verse as we go all the way through Luke and Acts, which we've already done. I have to, any time that we come to any story in Luke, and we say, this is really confusing. I don't know why he's writing this. I don't know how this fits. It has to fit with verse 4. And we see so that this is the reason that he wrote Luke. He said that you may know the close to the truth. No, the exact truth, the precise truth, the the precision. This is exactly what happened about the things you have been taught. He's already been taught these things. He's already become a Christian and Luke wants to exhort him. He wants to edify him. He wants him to strengthen his faith. And this gets me excited looking at the gospel of Luke that most of us here believe. Now, certainly uh, throughout the year that we go through this, as we present who Jesus is, there are those who don't believe that will believe. The word of God convicts people of their sin. The gospel is there and people will come to believe. But for us as Christians, it's okay. Like there's parts of the Bible that were written to to help us to know what was the truth, what happened to Jesus, what did Jesus do? And as we, we're already at the ending, so you guys can say hallelujah, or you guys say keep going, I don't know. But so as I've been pondering this text this week, like what, I mean, I got four verses, I did more background, I didn't really, you know, it's not like we got into any good stories, but I think that there's some lessons that in these four verses, first, we have the truth. This is the word of God. This is the, this is, anytime I'm asked any question, it's not, what do I think? When it comes to discipline, when it comes to guiding somebody, if I can't point to like black and white here, like if the Bible says, okay, love your wife. It's a command. I can't, it's love your wife. Raise your children. There's certain things that are black and white. Now there's other things I'm like, man, I, I kind of lean this way, but the Bible doesn't really tell us. But the word is the truth. It's reliable. Uh, you'll notice here that 2 Peter 120, this verse fascinates me. So over to Peter, if you go to the right, towards the back of the Bible. If you pass by Timothy, kind of keep your eyes there because we'll come back to it. So but past James, if you hit Revelation, you went too far. But 2 Peter, Peter at the end of his life, it's like, how did we get the Bible? Like, did who wrote the Bible? Did God write the Bible or did man write the Bible? Both. Both. Don't ask me to explain it anymore than, you know, I'll tell you what the scripture says about it. So in chapter 1, verse, or 2 Peter, chapter 1, verse 20, Peter writes, But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. So I want to set the record straight. You'll hear the longer that you're investigating biblical study hermeneutics it's called it's the science of studying a a text and all of us have probably heard that well so-and-so doesn't interpret it that way or i interpret it this way and so your interpretation is right or wrong that that you get the impression that there could be 17 different interpretations of a given text there's only one correct interpretation and this isn't a setup to me say well and i got it The correct interpretation is the original author's intent to the original recipient. That there is, like if I write a love letter to my wife, you guys can't change what I meant or what I said in my letter. When you write a letter to anybody, you can't just say, well, he said this, but this is what he really means. No, the authors, that's the correct interpretation. Now, there could be many different applications. You can read this and say, oh, the Lord really spoke to me and I, you know, this or Really, when we're talking about interpretation and the confusion of interpreting Bible passages, it's really that there's not clarity. Well, we don't really know. And this is what we think it says, and this is what we think it means, but I could be wrong. And so we'll see. Question. Great question. Wasn't the Bible originally written in Greek? The New Testament was written in Greek. What was the original one written in Greek? Greek. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew and Aramaic. The, that's a great question. And um, the reliability of what we're talking about is in the reliability of the scriptures and what's called the transmission of the text. So I'm going to try to make I'm going to try to explain this. And God handled this in two different ways. And both ways are genius to me. Um, as far as the Old Testament is concerned. So Genesis through Malachi. Or Malici, if you're Italian. Malachi, sorry, okay. Um, (laughs) That was written in Hebrew and Aramaic. Now, the people that were, the Jewish people who were responsible for recording um, the Bible, they were called scribes and they were absolutely meticulous. If they made one, they could have been halfway through, three quarters of the way through Genesis. And if they made one single mistake, burned it. It was destroyed totally and completely burned the the problem with that method is is we have had the old testament um, original manuscripts or copies of the manuscripts when we get down to the original writings we have very few copies because so many were destroyed and this is where the dead sea scrolls were so amazing that we think oh how do we know like especially with isaiah isaiah 53 it sounds like somebody wrote isaiah 53 that was at the cross of jesus that it was so perfect Now, in 1967-ish, 47-ish, it's in the 19. I always get it backwards. Um, But in the 1900s, there were some shepherd boys at the southern edge. Um, You want to give me that next slide? At Qumran, I can show you where Qumran is. So here's the top of the Dead Sea, and right here you see Qumran, right on the shoreline of, of the Dead Sea, you can go, um, so right there, Qumran, there were some shepherd boys, and down at this Dead Sea, it is dead. I mean, there's no life, brutal desert, hot and dry, and these shepherd boys were basically bored. I was there in September, and you can see, like, across the valley, there's little caves, and I could just see these two little boys with rocks saying, okay, first one to get it in the cave, you know, wins. Well, one of them got it in the cave and they heard a shatter. What was that? So they go in there and they find these clays, these potteries, pottery things that were holding scrolls. So they took it into town. They basically sold it. One guy said he understood what they had discovered. And so he said, You need to get this into the right hands. And as they got these scrolls, these ancient texts that were written, the, 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 the Qumran people were there during the silent years, which were B.C. 400 to about sometime before the birth of Christ. And and then they basically, we don't know really what happened to the people. And they discovered this writing. And one of the writings, it was a whole bunch of the Old Testament. But you had a whole copy of Isaiah that was found there. And so scholars then took this. And they go on tour. They were just here. The Dead Sea Scrolls were around here. And so scholars started going through the Dead Sea Scrolls and comparing the modern-day text of Isaiah. And they determined that it was 99.99 out to infinity that it, we have the exact text. So it was a great sort of reliability of confirmation of, of, of the Old Testament, of what we had. Now, as far as the New Testament, we it was written in Greek. And I have to kind of think how to explain this. And this was genius of the Lord, how he did this. But he handled it very differently. So let's pretend that Luke wrote this letter to Theophilus. And... As he wrote it to Theophilus, Theophilus would receive it. Say he was, I don't know where he was, but wherever he received it, he got the letter and then a bunch of other Christians said, this is really amazing. they get some scribes and then they each would copy it by hand all the way down and so then they would have, of that one copy, they would make, say, six copies. Then those six copies would start going around. Every place they went, they would be copied. And so... I don't even know of, of the Greek manuscripts. I have, a, I have a Greek New Testament in my office. And in the, um, I'm blanking on what it's called right now, the, but it can tell you when you read the text, it tells you where that, original man, where the, that manuscript is located. And they have ma- hundreds of thousands of manuscripts of the New Testament. And so when we get into our Bible and we say, well, some earlier manuscripts don't have this, um, they say, well, there's some that ha- have, have a little bit more, there's some that have a little bit less, and they kind of argue over which was in the original because we don't have the originals. But the genius thing about this is I think the point that I want us to take home is on the Greek New Testament, all around the world of the known world, there were all kinds of copies of partial copies of the New Testament, whole copies of books. But because there were so many, it would be impossible to distort what the New Testament said. I can't just write on a piece of paper, Gunner is God. You guys need a fault. Well, you guys, that would, I'd probably have to think of something more, a little more believable. But, but to say that Gunner is the prophet that's going to appear and listen to what he says. Give him all your money. I'd burn the edges. I'd make it look really old. And I, I did it so well that archaeologists would believe that it really was from back then and then we we dug it out of the ground, they'd say, well, phew, you can't just insert that in the book because we have all of these other copies and that appears nowhere. That's fake. Does that make sense? It's a science. Do you have another question? This is- no, 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 this is an answer. Yes. Okay. They said that in one movie I was watching that if we can have the manuscripts, the early church fathers going to the generation after the apostles wrote so much scripture that they could reconstruct almost a, the New Testament from all the writings because they embellished yeah, there's extra... That, that, that would be going into... See, we're talking about textual criticism, which is probably more than we want to do on a Sunday. There's about four people that are fascinated right now. <laughs> but in textual criticism, this is not just the Bible. This is any sort of ancient text. You look at the actual text, then you can look at the story from extra-biblical sources. So, like, we hear about Josephus a lot, and you hear about other church fathers. So as they're writing commentaries they're placing the scriptures in their writing so you have additional sources but it's fascinating and really truly we can say without a doubt that the scriptures that we hold in our hands are reliable i mean they came that we we each probably own about seven copies of the bible in the united states and if you go online but it so much blood was shed to get this to us guy said no this is the word it needs to be in people's hands And we need people need to read it. Um, It's not about me teaching you and that I'm the key to it. I want all of you going into my final point here is one of the final points, I should say, is the Bible is designed for us to read. As a Christian, you've received the spirit of God that he is within you, guiding, directing your reading. I would encourage you that as we're going through Luke read Luke a bunch of times. How many of us, you don't have to raise your hand if you're ashamed like I I am, but I'll still raise my hand. It's January 2nd. What do Christians do in January? I'm going to read the Bible this year. (laughs) We buy the one, I I just want to go to Amazon and I wonder how much do those one year Bibles spike right now? Like how, like I bet they're everywhere. And you read, you do, I've done it. I mean, I made it to like march one year you miss one day and you're like well i'll make it up next tomorrow then tomorrow you read two days then you miss three days you're like oh i gotta read six days in a row to get caught up and then you like miss four days and then it's normally around leviticus or numbers and you're like i'm done put a fork in me i quit i quit i quit so i want to submit yeah yes Um, I can, but not now. I can, I'll get back to you on that one because that is another really good question. Is is it what's called? I say, I'll tell you later. A short answer is: How did the Bible books become the Bible books? And normally, it's called the canon. A canon is a measuring line. This means we don't say that book. In figuring out what books of the Bible are books of the Bible, we don't say, oh, we want this book to be in the Bible or this book not to be in the Bible. Canon is a measuring line. And we say, is it scripture? Does it, does it over the course of history, was it accepted as a scripture? Does it itself claim to be scripture? Um, there's there's a whole process that's happened over the years. And there are lots of articles. And I could get back to you with with one that I think is, is good. Um, but but we okay where I was at we all want to read the whole bible and i encourage you to read the whole bible but it's also okay to focus on one book and i'd say focus on luke read luke a bunch you can read it a good reader can read it in about 2 to 3 hours if you have no distractions you know if your don't mind doesn't wander what i found is my mind wanders <laughs> and i you know i read it this week just to kind of in preparation and i was reading all a bunch of stuff but if you sit down and you read about 20 minutes you can get partway through read 20 minutes a day and you can do it in a week and it's really neat when you read through over and over and over again because then you begin to see the flow of what happened and then what you're doing is without even knowing it is you're memorizing it but not knowing that you're memorizing it and you'll go oh, i know that story or you'll hear somebody you go Oh, Jesus did this, and you're like, ah, it's not in the Bible. He didn't do that. You know, I don't know what it is, that he went to Montana or something, you know, crazy. It's like, oh, I didn't read that. I didn't see in the scriptures. So I'd encourage you to read the scripture, read Luke over and over and over again. Um, What I like about the gospel of Luke is he was doing this to strengthen um, Theophilus' faith and all of those who read it. And a modern-day example of this, like very much to Luke, is this: we give out these case for Christ. They're free out there. I was thinking about doing a new book, and I'm like, well, it's the same book as Acts, and it really fits. And it's such a great tool that here, Lee Strobel, he was a journalist. He did courtroom reporting where, where he would basically write stories of, of high-profile crimes. And so he took science of, of writing down and the research of trying to prosecute somebody. He and his wife were not Christians, and his wife became a Christian. And he said, you know what? We like partying. We like going to Vegas. We like doing all this stuff. And I got the bait and switch. And so he figured that the way to handle this extreme type A personality is I'm going to focus all of my energy and all of my money, and I'm going to fly all around the world, and I'm going to interview the leading scholars on both sides for the purpose of disproving Christianity. Well, towards the end of it, the evidence was overwhelming, and he said that he realized that the evidence was so overwhelming, but he still didn't believe because he's like, well, if I believe, then God has a claim to my life, and I'm going to have to make some adjustments, and he ultimately did. He's now a pastor, and uh, his friends, when they saw his like just his notes, like, dude, you've got to publish this. And so they put it together. He didn't create it to be a book. It was, this is his personal stuff. This was how much he hated Christianity and was going to prove it. And so, you know, we want you to have one and strengthen your faith, read it, study it. And and this year, you know, first Sunday of the year, you know, if my prayer for our church is that we would grow in the word. And and you know what? For those of you that have kids that are seven to 12 years old that that went to the back, you know, like, Whoever's teaching back there, we didn't study the same. Like they, I did not prep them. And so figure out who learned more. Say, so, hey, kid, what'd you learn? Tell me what you learned about Luke. And I guarantee you, those that have kids that are back there studying Luke 1 through 4 under, I think, Casey's teaching today, I guarantee those kids will have some insight that was greater than anything I came up with, That you won't, you know that they'll be able to share something with you. So, Father, we thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for this man, Luke, who, Father, was just allowed you to lead him. Lord, that he um, went through great effort to investigate, to research, to study, and to document it, Lord, that we, thousands of years later, can read and trust with total reliability. And, Father, we pray that as we to get into this study, Lord, that we would um, allow Luke's purpose to take root in our heart, that we would know the exact truth, that we would grow in our faith, that we would know um, about Jesus and what he did. And Father, we thank you that it's all about him. Father, we pray that as we read this and you convict us and you, Lord, you have a great claim in our life. And so, Father, as we sang that song, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. I pray, Lord, that that song would be more than a song, but it would reflect our lives. We love you, Lord. We praise you.